The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They're all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The world is a lot different these days, and the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are ready to help you safely navigate it. From helping you figure out the conscientious destinations to helping you figure out entry protocols for different countries, the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are there for you. Looking to work abroad for an extended period of time? Looking to attend virtual school from a remote location? These are all things that Blue Pineapple Travel can help you do. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in their ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust your training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you and to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by SlayRx. You can find those good folks at www.slayrx.com. Are you needing a pleasant spark to take your endurance game to the next level? Are you needing an all-natural, high-quality, customized hydration powder with or without sugar to stave off cramping and dehydration? Are you in need of an effective all-in-one fuel to slay your endurance efforts? Look no more. SlayRx. SlayRx has a really good line of products to serve our most pleasant exhaustion podcast listeners. Let's start with Michelle's favorite, Spark Plug, which replaces sports gel and gross post-race strips to the Porta Johns. It's a poppin' electrolyte powder in small, easily carried tubes. There's also an all-in-one endurance fuel. It has all of your electrolytes, clean fuel, and for no extra cost, your essential amino acids with or without caffeine. And it costs about one-third as much as other brands' combo rocket fuels. Finally, they have my favorite, SlayRx Hydrate Powder, which comes with or without sugar and varying strengths of electrolytes based on your individual needs. They can find those individual needs on the free quiz online at SlayRx.com or with in-person testing like Patrick and I did at their headquarters on podcast episode number 114. Hydrate is the fuel that I use during the Blue Ridge Relay this year, and I recommend it for all of you as well. SlayRx products are 100% natural, come in great flavors, are vegan friendly, and the Hydrate Light is keto friendly. They've all been well researched and developed by a UGA food scientist who's also an Ironman athlete. The products are tested by the pros and endorsed by your fellow endurance athletes and hardworking folks in the community. The free sweat quiz and their products can be found at SlayRx.com, on Amazon.com, or at your local run and bike shop if it's available. You can use the code PLEASANT21 for 10% off at their website. Thanks to SlayRx for sponsoring us, y'all. Give them a try. We appreciate our sponsors, and thanks to all of them for helping us bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slay RX. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a father of twin boys, and I am a college professor. My name is Michelle Frank. I am also an endurance athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. I am a mom to three girls, and I am a CPA. And my name is Eric Hall. I'm an endurance athlete and coach in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm the father to three teenagers and the husband to a beautiful wife, Melissa. 
All right. It is book week. I, for one, am excited to talk about the book. Um, I don't know if Michelle and Eric are as excited to talk about the book, but I guess we'll get to that soon enough. Before we do any of that, let's go around the horn real quick. Michelle, what you up to? I am deep in the trenches of preparing for the Passover holiday this weekend. So taking a small break from cooking and Googling what's on the Seder plate because it's like my 39th year and I never can remember. (laughs) (laughs) So made my mom come over today to make something that I just absolutely refuse to make. Um, And yeah, so we're gearing up for a pretty festive weekend. There's like so much, so many vagaries in what you just said that beg questions. The one I am going to go ahead and ask is what are you making your mom make that you refuse to make? So there's sort of a, I don't know, traditional, um, it's apples, nuts, and kind of wine and cinnamon. We call it horoset, but my three girls are all allergic to nuts. So Mm -hmm. I don't ever actually get to make it the way that I want to eat it. And I'm not willing it's very frustrating to me when they were little I used to serve it and I wouldn't give them any and then they got really upset so we started making it nut free so it's just annoying you have to cut the apple tiny 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 pieces and if I can't do the real thing I don't want to do it um so I just you know I was at the farmer's market today and I bought some Manischewitz Concord grape juice and apples and sent her a message and told her I'd be home by two so she should come over and make it so (laughs) and she is well, yeah, I'm cooking the whole Seder for, you know, for her. So she can come cut my apples and um, mom, I really appreciate you coming. I know she's going to listen to this. <laughs> but yes. what, is, what is the most difficult thing that you are cooking? Um, so this year, my 14 year old actually cooked almost everything. Oh, wow. But the most difficult thing probably that I'm going to cook is actually it's a new salad. It has tons of like kohlrabi and watermelon radishes and weird stuff that I have no idea what to do with. I don't even, I've never even bought kohlrabi before and I bought it today. So I'm really nervous about the salad, (laughs) but the rest of the food, like brisket and chicken and matzo ball soup. I mean, that stuff is, I got that down pat. So, and I have a big helper now. I feel like I've done a good job, uh, raising my oldest. She literally ran the kitchen the whole week. I literally sat at the Island with a laptop and a second monitor and told her what to do. So it was awesome. Very cool. <laughs> Very cool. Is that, 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 that feels like a rite of passage. Oh, it was, I mean, she, I mean, I, I make a five day process out of this. I make a menu, I make a timeline. I mean, she was, she would not, <laughs> what's next, what's next, what's next. I mean, she was way ahead of me. I just, I got to the point yesterday where I said, this is not a cooking day. This is, we're just going to finish turning over the kitchen day and tomorrow I'll go do the produce and Friday we'll cook the stuff that we can't freeze. But I mean, she stocked the freezer um, and just couldn't stop, wanted to do more. I got really mad because she doesn't clean as she goes. And then I told her that I was really sorry that I got really mad that (laughs) I need to work on myself. (laughs) But I just, (laughs) just because she cooked all day when I worked, I don't want to clean up the mess. I mean, she had bowls 12 a solid foot above the kitchen sink. So I, right. I don't have any experience cooking like that. I clean She's everything as I go. You, you need to, you need to train one of the younger daughters to be the, the, the sous chef and, and the dishwasher, and then you'll be good to go. Yeah. Um, and I should also say that nothing uh, that I know about you makes me surprised at all that you have both a menu and a timeline uh, for the preparation of your Passover meal. 
Oh yeah. It's like four pages. I, I look at them every year from the year before and I kind of improvise. And you so. tweak. Okay. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Well, I will be interested to hear over the course of the next several years, not only uh, how your daughter uh, does following your timelines, but also what changes get made to your process because of her influence. I'll have to uh, take note of that. <laughs> and for those of you who are not on Zoom with us, which is pretty much everybody, uh, Michelle, when I said that, gave me a look as if to say, she's not going to change me. <laughs> I mean, I got the my process. Is, There's only one way to do this. <laughs> she's just a smaller version of me. So she doesn't have uh, to change me. She just adapts to be just like me. So you say that now, you say that now in two years, we'll see whether that's true. Look at Eric. What is Eric's problem with this conversation? I'm loving this conversation. This is great. Eric, tell us what's going on with you, man. Yeah. So I've told you guys about Bazunzi. He's our, we'll call him our foster son, sponsor son from South Africa. And he's, he's at NC state on a, on a soccer scholarship. He's redshirted this season. So he's not playing, but he has tickets to the game. So I've been going to the home NC State games okay. and I just, I absolutely love watching soccer. Hmm. You know, that was, that's a big thing for me. Uh, I'm a running or endurance coach right now, but I actually enjoy coaching soccer more. Uh, hmm. I'm, I can be clear about that. It's, it's, it's just different, but this isn't about him or that. This is about an interaction he and I had um, and something he introduced me to. So he came, he comes up and spends the weekends with us. And he and I were sitting there and he's like, Hey, you want to watch something on Netflix? And I said, yeah, sure. You know, what's on there? Well, you know, you gotta be careful when you go into Netflix you gotta watch like the ratings that you're going through. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And finally he comes across something and I'm probably so far behind the times on this that everyone's going to go, well, of course that's awesome. But he opened up last chance university, last chance you on Netflix. Okay. And if you mm-hmm. haven't seen this show, this show is the bomb. And I'm only in one of the seasons. I'm watching the basketball season, mm-hmm. which is the uh, East Los Angeles or East Los Angeles College um, you know, series about this coach, John Mosley. And as much as I love coaching and I feel like I, I have a pretty good, I've got a pretty good penchant for it. This guy is one of those coaches you watch and you just say, wow, like there is so much to learn from this guy. He's at this small community college with self-admittedly a bunch of D1 rejects who um, are coming together and he's trying to build a team out of them. And he he has a singular goal. His singular goal that he states to all of them is, I am here to get you a scholarship to get you into the big leagues. That, that's it. And he works them like dogs. He deals with all of their crazy stuff and he's on a complete shoestring budget. And what it turns into is how John Mosley can wrangle this band of you know, players and, and make something great out of it. And from a, you know, from a team sport coaching, I'll, you know, track and fields are team sports. I, I get it. But, they're not team sports in the sense that basketball, football, baseball. Sure. I don't, I don't know that I consider baseball. Baseball is a little like in between. But they're not a team sport where, you know, it, it's an active engagement between a multiple players and you've got seven right. subs out and you have to deal with the, the attitudes in, in the moment and all that. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm just, I'm blown away by this guy. Cool. Absolutely blown away. He probably says 10 things in each episode that I, I got to write that down. Mm. I've, I've, I've had that interaction before and I didn't handle it as well as he did. Like that's an awesome interaction. And uh, yeah, so that's what I've been doing. I've been, I've been studying. I'm not just watching this. I'm like mm. studying this guy um, and how he coaches. And very cool. Even better than just that, he has this coaching staff that he is drawn in that will absolutely blow you away too. Hmm. You know, he is a high energy, like in your face at times, you know, he does everything, but he's got these other two guys that just balance the pendulum so well. Hmm. And, and it just, you know, and, and like how he picks the captain and what he expects of him and when the guys go talk to the assistant coach versus him. And when he asks the assistant coach to step in because he's just done you know, and, and then just how he balances all that and his life uh, outside of it. And the fact that he's at a community college, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's this little tiny college with no money. I mean, it just, it's awesome. That's all I can say. That's like the perfect segue into talking about the book so much so, so that too. like, I don't even want to talk about the, the, the Japanese Olympics here, but, <laughs> um, uh, but tell me this, what is a, uh, what does Zunzi think? What does he think? Yeah. Uh, he thinks it's funny because he likes watching Americans be stupid. And <laughs> those basketball players do a lot of stupid stuff. Okay. But I'll say this. He's, he's, a very, he's grown into a very intellectual soccer player. He mm -hmm. watches the game um, really critically. And mm -hmm. I think he sees that coaching aspect and like he can critically watch the basketball. I don't think he's a big fan of basketball. In fact, I think he would really be horrible at it if he ever played it. Mm -hmm. um, he would end up trying to use his feet. Um, but I think he gets a lot out of the, the team dynamic, the characters. I think he can relate a lot to the characters because of kind of the rough upbringing that he's been through, you know, just from being in South Africa and living in the townships. So I think some of that kind of rings true with him. So he, he enjoys it for different reasons than I do. Okay. Um, but we enjoy it. Yeah. I, I think that's what makes for a good show or what makes for a good piece of art is that different people can watch it and bring different things away from it. So yeah, yeah, very good. So very cool. Very cool. Well, like I said, I did want to talk real quickly about the, uh, the Tokyo Olympics. Um, and uh, right about the time we were putting out the podcast last week, you saw the big news, of course, that international fans can't come. Um, and so they literally sold millions of tickets to international visitors um, and as an attempt to try and make sure that the Olympics happen, um, they've said no international fans. Um, and so we had talked on this podcast a month or so ago about whether we thought it was going to happen. Um, I had said that I think that, that probably the biggest thing that would prevent it from happening is that about 80%, at least as of, as of about a month ago, of the Japanese population thought that it was a bad idea to actually have it. Um, and so... The IOC, the International Olympic Committee, and the Japanese Organizing Committee and the, the Japanese government have said they want to push forward with it. And so they announced last week, okay, we're going to do this, but we are going to do it with fewer people here, with fewer fans. Um, they started the torch relay today. It was a very uh, muted affair, a very kind of quiet, wasn't a whole lot of fanfare. Uh, eventually, it will go through every precinct or every state there in, uh, in Japan, and it will arrive in tokyo this summer in time for limit games what do you think michelle you think it's going to happen seems like it's going to happen mm -hmm. i think they're going to push forward every way possible unless something major happens 
you know, one of the new strains turns out to be, takes a huge spike back up, kind of like we saw the second wave last fall, late fall, early winter. Mm -hmm. But it seems like everything's pointing to the show is going to go on. It's just Mm -hmm. going to be different uh, than it's been before. But I would say the athletes in the summer Olympic sports that I follow are 100% (laughs) in it right now as if the Olympics are happening this summer. So yeah, yeah. And I think they have to be, but, but yeah, I think that this was, and when we talked about a month ago, we were all kind of like, eh, I don't know. I think it's probably less likely to happen than, than, than to happen. Um, but we did say, if it does happen, it's going to look different. And this is at least one big way that it would this look different. This is really different. <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. For sure. So I would definitely, I, I, I would say it's, I would swap at this point. I'd say it's probably more likely to happen than not happen. Um, um, and I also chalk that up to the fact that people just assuming that Japan is feeling the way that people in the United States are feeling, people in the United States are feeling really optimistic right now. Um, even though vaccine rollouts in a lot of places, including here in Georgia, have been a bit of a disaster um, with getting vaccines. I got my first shot last week. Um, it's uh, people are starting to feel very optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm kind of excited about this because I think it's a it's a fertile ground for world records. Hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially in distance running. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I think um, so too. Yeah. We've talked about in the past how the records are falling and people are running fast. And I think this, the excitement about this, the anticipation about this, the, the lead up to it could really set the stage for some just drop dead performances. I agree. And Tokyo deserves it, man. <laughs> yeah. So, I agree. so. So, yeah, I hope so. And I think so, too. Uh, you know, one of the best races in the entire Olympic Games is going to be the 10,000 meters, which is weird to say, but the, the men's 10,000 meters. Um, but I'm excited to see that. So speaking of the Olympics, maybe that's the segue we'll use instead. Start talking about the book we're going to talk about this week. So, uh, of course, as we've talked about before, as we've talked about several times over the course of the past couple of months, this year in 2021, we're going to choose four books. We're going to do books of the quarter. We had kind of done books of the month um, or just sort of sporadic book clubs over the course of the past year or so. And so we're going to choose four books this year. And the first book we chose was Running to the Edge by Matthew Futterman. It's a story of a coach named Bob Larson. Um, And so Bob Larson, uh, got his start not unlike the guy that Eric was just talking about at a community college in Southern California. Um, eventually, stitched together, cobbled together this group of, of uh, runners uh, that ultimately kept, called themselves the Hamul Toads, um, and they won a national cross country championship. Um, and so, so Matthew Futterman goes into to deep history, talking a lot about them. And then in the second half of the book, it sort of fast forwards through the 1980s. Um, and into the 1990s. Um, And so between the 1970s with the Hamul Toads and the young Bob Larson, um, and he's just getting started and just making a name for himself, goes into the 1980s, he gets a coaching job at UCLA, he coaches Olympic champions, he he coaches Olympic teams, he coaches NCAA champions. And then coming into the 1990s, that's when he recruits um, Meb Kofleski. And and Futterman makes the argument essentially that Meb Kofleski had the special sauce that the Hamul Toads had back in the 1970s um, and that Bob Larson was at his most Bob Larson-y when he was coaching uh, uh, Meb Kofleski. Um, so he coaches Meb Kofleski. Meb Kofleski ultimately becomes, of course, Meb Kofleski, uh, wins silver medal in the 2004 Olympic Games, wins NCAA championships, uh, sets a uh, national record a u.s record in the 10,000 meters um and of course his career i would say climaxes after he had already won the new york city marathon 
in 2014 by winning the Boston Marathon uh, one year after the bombing. Um, and so um, in what has got to be considered one of the great U.S. American distance running victories of all time. Um, uh, he also, during that time, coached Dina Castor, who was primarily coached by Joe V. Hill. And um, it talks a little bit about the relationship between Joe V. Hill and, uh, and, and Bob Larson as well. Um, I like the book better than y'all did. <laughs> that is very true. So I think that's fair to say. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the big themes or some of the things that sort of stood out to us, some of the things we liked and some of the things we didn't like. Um, so Michelle, why don't you go first? I'm not going to tell you you have to say something nice about it, but I am going to say like, what was one of the things that stood out to you that you liked or disliked? I did like the the story. I mean, I did like the progression of, uh, you know, Larson getting started in coaching, um, the way that he would really spot talent. I mean, I don't know that anybody could have spotted the talent the way that he did or and the athletes that he did, the way that he, you know, took ordinary runners and made them the best really, and made them believe that they could be the best. And um, I also like the way that uh, when something wasn't working, he, you know, found a, a solution to it. He reached out to another coach or he changed surfaces or, you know, he was uh, the progress of watching him mature into his coaching from, you know, high school to community college to the Toads to to Meb and Dina was probably the best part of the book for me. Um, I would also say we spoke about this a little bit before the podcast. Um, he brings you, and I think you felt this more than more than I did, but maybe now just thinking about it, I can feel it a little bit more. But he really brings you into the story. I mean, a lot of the stories about you know the original races and athletes progressing are you know 30, 40 years ago, but you really can feel. Uh, as if you're standing on the sidelines of some of those, you know, cross-country nationals, mm -hmm. uh, that race, the way that the author writes it, the way that Futterman writes it, you, you just feel like it's in the present, even though it's decades ago. Yeah. Um, so I liked the progression. I liked, you know, the coaching niches that they talked about in terms of Larson's maturation as a coach. Mm -hmm. um, and I like just kind of feeling like maybe we were part of the story or you could... You could like yeah. feel the race. I don't know. <laughs> no, I agree with you on that. And I like that too. I think that that um, with one notable exception, and we'll talk about the notable exception in a little while when we start criticizing it a little bit more. I liked when he focused really heavily on the small picture. Yeah. When he focused on Bob Larson and when he focused solely on Meb Kofleski and he talked solely about the individual, because he went, he went up telling the story of like each individual member of sure. that of that cross country club that he started in the 1970s in California that won club nationals. Yeah. Um, when he told those individual stories, when he kept it small, I thought it was really good. When he started trying to situate it in a much larger sense or try and compare it to something, that's that's when he kind of lost me a little bit. But but when he just dug into those little the, the sort of microscopic stories, I actually really enjoyed that for exactly the reason you said. I felt like I was sort of along for the ride and and was was a fly on the wall or you know a bystander on the course or whatever you would call it. Yeah, and one of the runners, I mean, I I read it, I, I read it, and I listened to it. So just from listening to it, um, one of the runners, Terry Cotton. I just, I felt like I knew who he was. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know who he is. I don't know if he even still runs. I don't even know if he's still alive, but the way that he told it, um, you know, just kind of his prodigy for several years of his career. So um, yeah. Terry, if you're listening, reach out to us and let us know you're still alive. <laughs> yeah, we want to hear you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Eric, what'd you think? You just hit the nail on the head of something that I couldn't really figure out. I generally bend books in three categories. 
with me, it's always threes, but it's, it's the book I can't put down and mm -hmm. it's three o'clock in the morning. I'm still reading it. It's the book that I will never take off my nightstand because I'm going to finish it at some point. <laughs> and then it's the book that I, because I, I enjoy it. Enough. I have a lot of those books. <laughs> well, maybe no, this is a little more selective than that. It's I enjoy it enough, but I can't stand it in large quantities. Okay. And then the third set or the books I open them, I get through the first maybe 10, 15, I force myself to 20 or 30 pages and then they're in the bin, mm -hmm. right? This is not a bin book. Well, one, because I was reading on my phone. I don't really want to throw my phone away. <laughs> but two, it's not really that book that I keep putting down because, and like, I'm, I'm going to finish it at some point. It's kind of in the middle of that and the book I can't put down. And, but you hit the nail on the head and I couldn't figure this out. I love the details. Mm -hmm. I love, and, and Michelle, you hit it too, when he talks about like um, running on the, the sawdust or, or, you know, dealing with that nagging injury that that runner has. I almost said player because that's how I think about it, <laughs> coaching soccer, but dealing with the nagging issue that that runner has to make them successful. I really enjoyed that. But where, it, where I get lost is when the story opens up a little bit. And what, what I think is, I don't know who Futterman's editor was. I think the editor completely failed him in this. Because I would bend this book as a phenomenal story told poorly. Hmm. And, and I, I mean, it wasn't How even told, told poorly, it, it was edited poorly. When, and I'll, I'll give just an example of what I thought. Those vignettes that were thrown at the beginning of chapters, they were, I get it. It's like from a runner's perspective, but I don't. Oh, you're talking I about the vignettes when he was talking about his own running? Yeah, but it just, it just didn't, it didn't blend into the story. It didn't, it didn't help. It didn't help tell the story. It didn't. You were, you were talking it, about, you're talking about when he was talking about his own running. Like when he no. talked about his own marathon and stuff like that. No, these were, or, 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 is that what it was? I don't know yeah. what it was. Yeah, so that's it what it was. It was talking about himself and his personal experience running, but it also, I do agree with you. It took me, I had to figure out that he was actually talking about himself in those vignettes. Mm -hmm. And I was- See, I, I didn't know that because it always sounded like a different voice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It literally sounded like a different voice every time and it never applied well, I didn't, I didn't like I those. I don't care about Futterman's marathons. Like, I, <laughs> right. Yeah. No. So, so yeah, he, he started a lot of chapters about, he, he, he started a lot of chapters by talking about his own training and what he was doing and trying to qualify for Boston and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe he was trying to establish his credentials as a runner or, or somebody who's qualified to write about Bob Larson or, or to, to pass judgment on Meb Kofleski or whatever it happens to be. Um, but yeah, I, I, that didn't bother me as much as it bothered y'all, but I, but I agree. I just didn't think it was necessary. Um, I don't, just, I don't, some of them weren't even written well. They were, it was like <laughs> stream of consciousness. I that's, mean, and that's how I got lost. And I'm like, what does this have to do with what I'm trying to read about? And those yeah. were the pages that I'm like flipping through. Okay. Mm -hmm. what, what's the punchline here? Like, I, yeah. I, I want to read more about this story. So that's yeah. why I say maybe the editor failed him. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know if the editor failed him. I have a different take on that. I think that he, part of Futterman's writing this story was because he wanted, he was fascinated by, you know, by, by a skill that he didn't have. He didn't have this speed. And, but he wanted 
other people, every other reader to be able to relate to the book. So by sharing, you know, his, I guess his career with running and, and his, the level that he runs at, it was, I felt like it was a way, you know, for him to kind of relate to the ordinary reader, um, just to show that he actually didn't possess the skill and the speed that, that was, that he was fascinated by that led him to read the book, but that led him to write the book. But at the same time, you know, there was something to be taken from the story that he was writing. I don't know. So, so they were you randomly applied. They were so, randomly so, applied. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't really match up with what was going on. And then they just peter out. <laughs> they, they oh, I agree a hundred. I didn't like them. I just, <laughs> I think the reason why he wrote them was, um, yeah, no, I, just I more yeah. contrast yeah. who he is himself and his fascination with running fast. I, don't know. I think you're. I think you're probably right, Michelle. Um, and I think that that he was trying to. I, I think he was trying to say that 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 as he told this story, it influenced him and made him think, and and it means something to him. But 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 the way that it felt, at least, and I think Eric agrees with me on this. The way that it felt was that he was he was talking about these great runners doing these amazing things, and he's like, "Now look at me." <laughs> yeah, I didn't <laughs> you even know? know it was him. Um, <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, to, to me, to me, it felt like, to, to me, it felt like, like taking the spotlight off of the subject of the book and putting it on himself. And that's, I think that's what, what, what good biographers and good journalists expressly try not to do. Um, and so, so yeah, I think that's an interesting point. It did, it didn't hit me the same way it hit you, Eric, but I told, I mean, in thinking about it, yeah, I could see how that probably wasn't great. Um, but yeah, I mean, he told the story, he, like when he talked about the nationals cross country courses and that sort of thing, he would talk about there's a hill at mile two. And then he would talk about how the race unfolded and what the split was for the mile mark and all that sort of thing. I thought that was, I, I, that level of detail I really appreciated. Loved it. By the end of the book, however, because there were some other factual things that he said that I thought were incorrect. I began to wonder whether he was making those details up. <laughs> um, and so, which is too bad because, because the thing that I really liked about the story is exactly what you're describing, Michelle. It's, it's, it's the, the stories I felt were really well told. Um, now, I, I, I took some, some, some exceptions with a couple of the ways the story were told. For example, as we talked about on the podcast before, um, he seemed to suggest that the Hamul Toads and, and later Mev Kofleski were literally going out and running as hard as they possibly could every single day. Um, and that's not accurate. In fact, I, I went back and looked in Meb for Mortals to see what Mev Kofleski said about his training. And then I ended up reading 26 marathons about all of his training and all of his marathons to make sure that that's not actually the way he trained. And it's not. So the Bob Larson method of coaching is not sending people out on runs to go as hard as they possibly can every single day. Um, but that's what Matthew Futterman said. And after he said that several times, after he said that over and over and over again, and I know that that's not accurate, eventually it began to sort of cast a pall over everything that he said. And it made me begin to wonder, well, did the Nationals course really have a hill in mile one the way that he said it did? You know, did... Uh, these two guys actually see each other as these hardcore competitors, the way that he described. And so, so, and I think that's, that's unfortunate um, because, because I, I wanted to take the stories at face value and I wanted to, to trust the details that he was sharing. Um, and by the end of it, because he had kind of gotten off base on a couple of big things, um, I began to, to, to doubt the veracity of some of those details. Yeah. You know? So I think that 
I had to convince myself, and I do think this is true, you know, having read the other books about Meb's training and some of the reviews about this book, that what he was really trying to say was, I mean, Larson, when it was time to run hard, like Larson's, you know, philosophy or coaching was kind of like, well, when you think you're running hard, run harder. And Mm -hmm you know, just try to keep running as hard as you can bring another level, but it wasn't bring your mind and your body closer to the edge, but it wasn't that they ran like that all the time. It was, and that's the way the book made you feel that like every day, these guys were going out and pushing their limits and that was their training. And I mean, anybody who knows Meb's career, I mean, nobody, no, no professional runner, no runner can have, you know, can span decades at the top and train you know, balls to the wall every day. But I, I felt like that was misleading, but I think um, I just had to look at it as more when it was time to run hard. This was mm-hmm. like the Larson approach. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is actually I how he does right. coach. I think you're right. And I think that's, I, th- I think you're totally right that that's what he was trying to say. He was trying to say that, that, that you are capable of more than you think you are. And that's what it means to be running at the edge. I also think that he, he was meaning it in sort of a, a, sort of like accumulated fatigue type way <laughs> for lack of yeah. a better way of saying it, that, that, that um, almost like what they describe in once a runner. I mean, that, that this idea of, of you're running, you're, you're doing all of this running and you're training and you're training and you're training and you're training and you're training. Um, and I, and I think that that's kind of what it meant as the edge as well. Um, um, but yeah, I think the way that I read it, or at least the way it sounded to me as he spoke about it was, Oh no, you're just running as hard as you can every day. Yeah. I would agree. Um, but I think that really frustrated us because we know enough about Meb and his training to know that Meb ran a lot of miles and he ran them really pretty easy pace. I mean, he spent years talking about how he goes out at eight, nine minute pace on, on his easy days. So it definitely, it didn't line up uh, reading or listening to it, which I think threw all of us off. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. For sure. I might've, read this differently because I didn't like my brain isn't set up to accept that from who I knew Bob Larson, you know, from what I knew about how he coached and from the, the respect and the, the confidence of his athletes. I never, Futterman said it over and over again, running to the edge, running to the edge, running to the edge. And I agree with George, it got a little repetitive and old. But I think it was what I took out of it was it was more that's an important component than that's all you do, mm-hmm. you know. And because I don't know that any coach, any coach worth his salt, her salt, would read that and go, you know what, I'm going to run my runners into the ground all the time. Mm-hmm. They're going to run at eighty to ninety percent FTP mm-hmm. every run, <laughs> mm-hmm. and on the hard days we're going to go even harder, you know. And I don't know that any of us would do that. I'm not really sure that we're the, we're the audience for the book, the total audience for the book. And maybe there was a little bit of sensationalizing to grab more people's attention, mm-hmm. but I didn't read it like that. I read it like, this is the forefront of, you have to, you have to put in those, you know, tempo threshold type runs. And that's an important component, but that's yeah. not everything. So yeah. Yeah. I know, you and Michelle leveled that that criticism multiple times, and I just sort of listened to it. But then I go back and read, and I didn't see it when I was reading. Okay, and that's good. I, I mean, 
And, and so, I mean, you mentioned the target audience there, and I think that's one of the reasons why, why, why it bothered me a little bit is that, that I think you're right. Like I didn't read this and be like, Oh, Bob Larson had him running hard every day. That's what I need to do now after 30 years of, of, you know, coaching 80, 20 approach, like, like that's not what I was going to do. Um, and so I think that you're right that, that maybe he wrote it that way and talked about it that way. Cause he was trying to impress upon the citizen jogger, if you will, how hard Mev Kofleski and Dina Castor and the Hamul Toads push themselves and how deeply they go to the well um, when it comes time to run hard. I think he's trying to impress upon people that very thing. I worry, though, the takeaway for sort of your your regular runner who wants to be more like Meb is going is, is to say, well, I'm going to go out and run hard every day. Which is um, the exact opposite of what's going to get anybody right, right. like Meb. <laughs> right. So so. I think you're. I think you're right, Eric. Um, but I think that was a miscalculation, or at least I worry that it is. Um, and by all means, folks, if, if if that's not what you took from it at all, let me know. I do think that that um, there's another. There's a movie about Bob Larson called City Sick, City Slickers Can't Stay with Me, um, and I think that we're all going to watch that sometime over the course of the next little while here and and see what we think about that. I think it's on Amazon, and so we'll be able to watch that, and so maybe that'll go a little bit more into his coaching philosophy and stuff like that. Let me say something else about it that I liked, um, and so one thing that, that, that came through to me um, is that, um, and, and this kind of reminds me a little bit of what Eric was talking about in the last chance you that he was talking about uh, at, at the outset of the podcast um, is that Bob Larson um, really took his athletes for who they were. Um, and, and he didn't try to change fundamentally who they were. He just tried to make them into good runners. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting thing. Like he didn't try and make all the Hamul toads in the 1970s cut their hair. Um, and he let them name themselves the Hamul Toads. Um, and they, in fact, called themselves the Toads because they felt like outcasts a lot of time. And this was the one place where they all come together, right? Um, it talks about how he was willing to recruit and embrace Meb Kofleski, um, even though he's this air train immigrant who didn't really seem to fit in in a whole lot of different places. Um, and, and that was one thing I thought was super cool. Um, and I think that that has political ramifications as well. But but I think that that you know a good coach kind of doesn't try and remake his athletes in his own image, but instead sort of accepts them as who they are and 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 works with them to make them better. Did did, did that stand out to y'all, or am I making that up? No, I think that's a really good point. I would say that I, I think that's that. I think that's a good point. Um, so, so I, I thought that was neat and that made me definitely respect him a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm interested to read a little bit more about, um, like I said, or, or, or to, to, to look a little bit more in his, um, in, in that movie, maybe that, that, that they'll have a little bit more about that as well. I and do right. wish the book had spoken a little bit more about other, uh, athletes during his tenure at UCLA. I mean, he was there for what, over 20 years. Yeah. So yeah. we didn't hear much about. I mean, I feel like there's probably a lot of great stories that transpired during his time coaching mm -hmm. there. And I would have loved to have heard more about those. Maybe, maybe the movie would go into more detail. Um, mm -hmm. But I was definitely, I felt like it spent a lot of time focusing on pre-UCLA and then mm -hmm. kind of just like went into Mebville. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I love the Meb stuff. And I also yeah. went and read his uh, autobiography after this and got a little bit more information that I didn't really already know, which was great. Um, but like, tell me about some of the other division one athletes yeah. that you've Otto Bolden. And, tell me about Otto Bolden. 
Um, no, I, because I, I think Otto Bolden's an interesting character, and he was he was around the same time that I was, um, and around the same time as Mev Kafleski, um, and ultimately was an Olympian, and and um, and held the NCAA record in the hundred for a little while. Um, yeah, I like he took all these kind of rags to riches, you know, random people, community teams went and won nationals, and it just feels like. There's probably guys who walked into UCLA at 18 and redshirted their freshman year and ended up, you know, top three in the country in, mm-hmm. in some events. Mm-hmm. So all those stories to me would have been, you know, just as interesting to read as is Meb's progression. Um, but I agree. Someone else will write another book on Bob Larson. So <laughs> so so I think you're the one, Michelle. Um, <laughs> do do either of you wish that he would have written more about physiology and the actual coaching approach no that, that he would have said here's what they do on mondays here's how they do, do you do you wish they would have done that not like not like a like a like a happy runner type book not like a hansen's method type book but but they would have spent a little bit more talk, time talking about the specific workouts that they did no because futterman is what a deputy sports editor for the new york times i mean he's not the guy to write that stuff i don't think i don't i wouldn't i wouldn't have wanted to read that from him i think futterman's a storyteller when it comes to this narrative. Um, so does it make you want to read Bob Larson's book then? Like if Bob Larson yeah. had a book, it would where's Bob Larson's book? Yeah. <laughs> I would like to see. So in my mind, Bob Larson and gags are sort of, I, I, I think they're similar. Like I would love to see step into Bob Larson's office and he probably has paper training logs everywhere. Like I bet he has a notebook on a hundred athletes that he could probably pull out and show you a workout and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would be, more of, you know, Bob Larson telling his story maybe, or somebody interviewing him directly. Um, mm-hmm. it, I don't think it would have, I don't think it was for this specific book, but. Eric, what do you think? I find that some of these, these great coaches can't tell their own story. Mm-hmm. It's part of their, maybe it's part of their ethos. Like it's, not about them it's about the athletes and they just pull the pieces together so I think it takes someone like Futterman and this is one of my you know this is one reason why I I wanted to read the book and I'm I still read the book is that he was willing to tell the story of a great um, and do his best at it right and try to do it justice so um, but I, I I don't I would love for Bob Larson to write a book and I and I would love to read it and I, I have a fear, though, that either he's not very good at writing <laughs> or he just doesn't he can't tell his own story. Yeah. You know, one of my it's kind of a critique. You know, it's obvious that Futterman thinks very, very highly of mm-hmm. Bob Larson mm-hmm. and almost it's almost over the top. It's almost like like he can't do wrong. Like he, he's definitely the hero of this story. And it's, it's like, he's playing chess, but he's the grand master hmm. and he's just slowly bringing all the pieces together to, to checkmate the other, you know, the other teams or whatnot. And he knows the end game, but he, he makes very few mistakes along the way. And I, it's kind of overblown a little bit like that, mm-hmm. but you know, he, I have a feeling that he might've told the story better than Bob could tell it himself. Mm-hmm. So, so that's one of my, you know, that I'd say that that's why I appreciate the book because mm-hmm. I told you guys before this started, I really wanted to read this book about this coach. Cause you know, that's, that's one of my things. I want to, I want to learn about how other coaches coach. Um, 
I just, I just don't think it was told as, I don't think the book honored the level of coaching. Well, I, I, th I think if there was one thing to take away about his coaching style, if we want to call it that, I think the one takeaway is the thing I mentioned just a little while ago is, is not trying to, to force your hand with your athlete. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's probably just when I think about the biggest takeaway in terms of coaching style, that's it. Um, because there's not a whole lot to take away physiologically. Um, now in Meb's book in Meb for mortals, I mean, it's literally, as the title suggests, it's all about how to train like Meb Kofleski if you're just, you know, a, a regular old runner. And so there are a lot of things in there. And I'm going to presume that most of that stuff is informed by, by Bob Larson's approach, right? It's not like Meb, Meb Kofleski is going to be trained one way for his entire career because Bob Larson was his only ever coach. Um, it's not like he's, he's going to be trained one way for his entire career and then write a book about how to train like him. And it's going to be a whole bunch of other stuff. Right. And right. so, so if, I guess if you look in the, or if I look in the uh, different aspects of, or the different training plans of Meb for mortals, you could sort of read between the lines and, and, and get some of the physiological principles that, that Bob Larson is definitely applying here. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that, that it probably would have taken away from it. I would have, there was like one page, where they talked about when he gets together with Joe V Hill, um, who's another coach that I kind of really admire that I would like to read a whole lot more about. And I found out in that book that there actually is a story, a, a biography of Joe V Hill that I plan to read sometime soon too. Um, it's sort of sitting on my nightstand to be read kind of like all those other <laughs> books that, that Eric was talking about before. <laughs> um, but, um, but there was like one page where they talk about physiology and they talk about the actual specifics of training they were doing. Mm -hmm. And I just wish there would have been a little bit more. Um, you, you know, you, you mentioned Joe V. Hill and th there was a passage in the book and I read that and it just resonated with me so much. And I wouldn't have brought it up if you hadn't just said, you know, you want to read this book about him. But it's it's when he first talks to Dina mm -hmm. and the, the exchange goes like this. I guess these are her words, you know, recorded by Futterman, but he, he says that um, Hill talks about his team of runners, how they train together and eat together and they push and love one another. He doesn't ever mention winning or talent. Mm -hmm. Running, he says, is about building great relationships, setting goals for personal development, and then trying to reach them about bringing people into your life and venturing out on a journey with them. I was like, holy crap. That it's was up. high school. That was high school right there. That's great. And, and, you had, and you had some good high school coaches. Yeah. And I did too. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I had too. a team there, you know, and we, we had 120 kids on our team, our third year, but there was 10 of us, you know, there were 10 of us and we were that Hamul Toad group, you mm -hmm. know, and it was all about the relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, coach Luke Prescott, he was my coach in high school and, um, coach case, um, yeah, in case. Uh, our girls coach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. she, she was phenomenal. Um, but I carried that forward in how I coach soccer teams. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, we don't talk about winning. We talk about relationships. And when I read that chapter or that, that's just a paragraph. I was like, I got to read about Joe V. Gilmore. Right. I definitely have to read about that guy more. Awesome. Cause he, he resonated with Dina. And I think I almost thought for a moment, he's, he's really her coach. <laughs> he's mm -hmm. really who got her where she went. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. One more aspect. I'm glad you brought that up. Athletes first, winning second. Um, yeah, very much. 
Um, one last thing I want to talk about, and then I want to see if you all have other last things about the book you want to talk about. Nike comes off really badly in this book. They sure do. <laughs> um, and, and, and I don't know if it's because there's, there's just Nike turns up poorly in multiple times in Bob Larson's history. Um, or if, and, and that's objectively true, or if, if Futterman just doesn't like Nike, um, or, or what it happens to be, but uh, in particular, there's, there's two passages. One is when the Hamul toads are just kind of starting to pull it together and Nike, this is the 1970s. Nike is still kind of this fledgling company. Um, uh, they reach out to Nike and they say, they say, can you sponsor us? Can you give us a little bit of money? And, and Nike said, no. Um, and then you fast forward to the early 2000s um, and, and they're starting this training group um, in Mammoth Lakes, California, um, that ultimately Dina came out of and ultimately Meb Kofleski came out of, ultimately Ryan Hall came out of and, and several others. Um, and, and they say, Nike, can you give us a little bit of seed money to start this group? And Nike gives them a very small amount of money relative to the Barely amount of money. 30 $30,000. Yeah. Yeah. It gives them $30,000. Yeah. And Futterman makes a point that they're a $500 million company at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And they give them $30,000 to, to, to be the seed for ultimately this group that leads to multiple Olympians and, and American records and, and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and then finally, um, and this felt like actually the most galling of the three, um, Mev Kofleski, um, when he is uh, looking for a new sponsor at the end of, was it 2011? Um, he, he was looking for a new sponsor or he's looking to, to renew his, his uh, sponsorship with Nike because he'd been sponsored by them for, for several years. Um, and he had won the New York City Marathon at that point. He had been an Olympian, a silver medalist in the Olympic Marathon at that point. Two-time um, Olympian, right? So, so two-time Olympian at that point. Yeah, and a medalist. Um, he was a national record holder in the 10,000 meters at that point. And so, so, yeah, a very strong athlete with a very proven record. And they basically strung him along until the end of the year. And then they cut his contract severely. Um, yeah, such that ultimately, yeah. And so, 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 so that ultimately he ended up turning it down and he went to Skechers. Um, and he became Skechers' first real athlete, um, their, their first big sponsorship. Um, and he helped them design shoes. And I would say ultimately it was a very mutually beneficial relationship because Skechers actually got a lot out of, of working with him as well. Um, so so uh, Eric is pumping his fist because he knows that I'm a Skechers guy. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, what did y'all think about that? I actually think that uh, Futterman hates Nike <laughs> based on the way <laughs> he writes those passages. But um, I did... I knew the progression of the storyline, you know, Meb two-time Olympian, 2009 New York City Marathon champion, all of that, um, and couldn't really get what he wanted uh, to re-sign with Nike, didn't make the 2012 Olympic team, went to Skechers. Um, but the background in this book kind of led me into Meb's autobiography, which details it more. Um, and then Meb's brother, Howie Kleski, who's also his agent, and he's also an agent for other professional runners, uh, he kind of made the podcast rounds recently and, and went into even more detail about um, kind of what happened with that. So I definitely, this book, what he said about it, you know, left a really bad taste in my mouth, even worse than I guess I already have about Nike. Um, but, you know, reading Meb's autobiography and really uh, hearing how it all went down and it's pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, I'm with Futterman. <laughs> I'm glad that he didn't showcase Nike in a positive light in this book because pretty trash. <laughs> Eric, what do you think? 
it's it's funny the perception of Nike I have now and the perception I had in high school. That was the only shoe <laughs> you wore in high school. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. And and we you know we that was the late '80s, early '90s, mm-hmm. and I haven't worn a Nike shoe like any type of Nike shoe, not just running, but I haven't worn a Nike shoe. I, I can't remember the last, it was probably in high school. Mm, wow. And I, I got this bad taste in my mouth back then. So when I'm reading that, I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Mm. You know, and I watched another Netflix series and it was about art. And they were talking about the guy who designed all the Air Jordans. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I realized in watching that story was how kind of singular focused Nike is in certain points in their, in their timeline, you know, Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, who's the, who's the runner that they really like got behind? Is there one? Steve Prefontaine. Michael Johnson, (laughs) Alison Felix. Steve Steve Prefontaine. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I don't see the Tiger Woods love. And maybe it's partly just like how popular those athletes are as compared to most runners. And I, and I say popular outside of our. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be fair, nobody really cares about track and field and runners. Well, I mean, yeah, if you look I, at other, like, if you look at Michael Jordan for Nike or, you know what I mean? I know. It just So, so my point is, and you're making my point. I, I got off track because I started thinking, they go where the money is, right? Yeah. And, and they're making a yeah. lot of money on this shoe right now. And they put a lot of time and energy into it. And I'm wondering where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. This, this line of shoes. Yeah. And I wonder if they've missed their mark. I'm wondering if they missed their mark in grabbing that athlete and just making that athlete like the biggest thing since sliced bread. And they're going for just the, you know, let's get everybody just running in this shoe, whatever. Yeah. Because what's happened is the rest of the markets come in, made their own carbon shoe, and I think they're starting to lose some ground. That's my personal opinion. Whereas if they had the, is there a Michael Jordan in running? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I mean, is there a Michael Jordan in running? Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan partially because Nike made him Michael Jordan, if that makes sense. Good point. And so, hey, so, good, so hey, could, yeah, could if they you have... watch the documentary, I mean, he, that, that was yeah. Nike was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was Nike like that. So, so if, if, they, if they would have chosen, if they could have said, all right, Mev Kaflesi is going to be our Michael Jordan. And they would have just thrown it all in there and put him at the forefront and, and, and filmed commercials with Spike Lee in them that had Mev Kaflesi or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? And it almost sounds ridiculous to even describe, but, but, but would that have, have created a Michael Jordan? of Could they have created a Michael Jordan of running? I mean, and it didn't necessarily have to be mev kafleski but but is that something to do i have a i i feel like i have a real tortured relationship with nike (laughs) (laughs) because 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 of what you describe eric that that i think that they make they make very hardcore capitalist decisions um they make money they, they make decisions based on money and that's that's in our system that's not something you can totally fault them for but i think that in the process they've really done a lot of ethically dodgy things um and and they've stepped on a lot of athletes and and who who have otherwise treated them well and i think this was a good example of that 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 
uh, Meb Kofleski had, had done a lot of good things for him and had performed really, really high level. And as soon as he had a not so great year, uh, they dropped him. Um, and, and well, we, they didn't technically drop him. Well, they, they, <laughs> they, they reduced his salary to a place that, that was insulting for somebody it with his resume. Yeah. Um, and so, but, and, and of course there, there's, there's even worse examples of this with, with people like Allison Felix, uh, and Come on, they just did it with the maternity yeah. ad that they released right. last week. Right. I mean, that's, um, so, 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 so that, that's the one side that I think is so terrible. Then on the other side, I, I, I appreciate Nike's roots in the running community and the fact that they continue to, despite the fact that running is not necessarily the most lucrative sport, they continue to invest in running. And they continue to, to, to say, okay, running is in our DNA. Running is where we started. We're going to, to spend time developing and creating these carbon plated shoes, for example, that are going to change the game. Um, I don't, I don't think any other companies would necessarily do that um, once they became Nike size, but I think Nike has always honored their roots in that regard. Now that might change since Nike has new leadership now and, and there's some indications they might be getting away from their running roots a little bit, but I do think we're seeing a so, small shift. So we'll see. We'll but see. we do have like a 40 year contract with USATF. So. <laughs> so, well, you know, the, the silver lining of that is that, that maybe this will, this will resolve the tortured relationship that I have with them. So <laughs> it'll be <laughs> good for be me personally. Good silver lining, <laughs> It'd be good for me personally. That's something that all of you can take solace in. <laughs> um, all right. Final words on the book or anything else, Eric. Like I said, I, I'd encourage people to read the book because right now, it's the story. It's the one that's out there. And I, I don't know that anybody else is going to write the story about Bob Larson, but I would go into it, you know, understanding that it might not be that book that grabs your attention right off the back and holds it. And you need to, you need to hold, hold tight <laughs> and, and, and get through to the Meb and Dina portions of the book and the Joe V Hill, you know, team, the, the coaching team and all that. Because I think there's a lot in there. Whether you're a coach or you're a runner, there's a lot of nuggets in there. So, yeah, it's a phenomenal story. Not told in the best way, but I think reading it, yeah, go read it. Right on. Michelle, final thought. Sure. So um, Katie Arnold, author of Running Home, who uh, we've had on the podcast, uh, wrote a review for it in the New York Times in uh, 2019. It's called The Speed Freak Who Transformed Running. Um, and I liked what she said. <laughs> she said, Futterman places the reader in the middle of the action, the spectator to the story's improbable unfolding. While Larson's later athletes, most notably the Olympic medalists, Meb Kofleski and Dina Castor, who dominate the book's second half, ran to international glory and lend a glimmer of star power to the story. It's the long forgotten toads who will elicit the most cheers. They are chasing victory, but also the primal idea of doing what the body was meant to do, doing it beautifully and to its fullest extent, which are really the same thing. Long after they faded into obscurity, the toads stand as testament to the joy of sport doesn't lie in the results, but in the process, the pursuit of excellence and self-discipline, the rigors and rewards of dedication. So I Love like that. that. And reading this reframed for me a little bit, you know, what I could take from the book. Um, mm -hmm. I have a much, greater appreciation for having read it than I did while I was trying to read it. Um, but Eric and I definitely struggled to <laughs> get going 10 pages by 10 pages in the beginning. So. I love that quotation great. from Katie Arnold. I thought it was just great. And I think she's totally right. I completely yeah. agree with her. And I think that that's, I think that's the thing that, that for whatever reason, 
I connected with a little bit more easily or a little bit more readily than y'all did. And that's not to say that, that you connected I'm better, with it but, off but the bat. <laughs> so yeah, that, that just for, 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 for whatever reason, I, for some reason intuited that. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. Um, but I'll think about it more. Well, you it, have it, more of that like creative brain. Like Maybe, maybe. Um, is, didn't Katie Arnold tell us when we had her on the podcast that she was writing another book? She is writing another book. All right. And it's not out yet though. No. All right. Because, because we got to pick another book for the next quarter and we don't know what it's going to be yet, but you know, just ha having you reading Katie Arnold there, maybe say, ah, oh, Katie Arnold. Yeah. We appreciate all of y'all listening, but yeah, go back and listen to our, our, our interview <laughs> with Katie Arnold as well. Cause I think I might do that this weekend too. <laughs> She's an interesting person. Yeah. Um, but shout out to Matthew Futterman for writing a book about Bob Larson for taking on a subject that it's probably not going to sell the most books, but, uh, but, but we appreciate him doing it and capturing a lot of that spirit as Katie Arnold described there. So um, thanks for joining us, everybody. Eric, thanks for being here, man. Thanks for reading the book. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thanks, George. Michelle, always a pleasure. Thanks for reading the book. Uh, you're welcome. Talk to you next time. Thanks again for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast, on Twitter at pleasantpodcast, or on Instagram, Most Pleasant Exhaustion. We're available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, so share us with your friends. Don't forget that we're sponsored by ITL Coaching and Performance, who you can find at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching, on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingperformance, and on Instagram, ITL Coaching. We're also sponsored by Blue Pineapple Travel, bluepineappletravel.com, facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, and on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And finally, don't forget we're sponsored by SlayRx. That's slayrx.com, facebook.com slash here for SlayRx. That's the number four, SlayRx. Twitter, at official SlayRx, and Instagram, here for Slay RX, the number four Slay RX. Discount code Pleasant21. On behalf of Michelle Frank, Patrick Ollinger, and Eric Hall, I'm George Darden. Thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.